Welcome to worship at Woodmont Baptist. You're in for a unique experience today. Not only do we have a guest worship leader, but we also have a guest preacher today, Dr. Don Whitney from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville is with us today. One of our Sunday school classes has been studying one of his books in their Sunday school class, and we were able to bring him in this weekend for a conference on the spiritual disciplines. And it really is, I told our people, if we will commit to do these things, to pray and study the scriptures, to intake the Bible, not just into our heads, but into our hearts, it will change our lives forever. So this is really important stuff. And today he's going to bring a message from Romans 8. Again, a message of hope. If God is for us, who can be against us? And something that's against him right now is his, the, the illness that he started to come down with yesterday during the conference. And he jokingly, I thought, pointed to me and said, you better hope this doesn't continue for tomorrow. I said, oh, sure, it'll be fine. And then he texted me this morning and said, man, my voice is really hurting. So pray that Dr. Whitney will be able to bring us a word. If he is not able to speak, then uh, his associate, Coy Rayford, who's here from the Southern Baptist Seminary, will jump in and aptly fill the pulpit. He was frantically typing away in my uh, office this morning, but uh, the Lord is faithful and his spirit is able to speak no matter when and how. Uh, and if God is for us, then who can be against us? Please take your Bible. <clears throat> Turn to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Instead of one sermon, you may hear part of two today. If I can only go for a few minutes, Coy is ready to come and from a different text, speak briefly, and um, I hope that doesn't happen. This has never happened to me before on a Sunday morning. <clears throat> I'm sorry for how it may sound, but uh, doing my best, giving my best. I notified about 30,000 people via social media this morning, asked them to pray. I had no voice when I went to bed, no voice when I woke up. I'm grateful for being able to stand here. And I would usually spend a lot more time expressing my gratitude for what an honor it is to be here, but I'm gonna say what little voice I do have. Get into the wonderful promise of Romans 8.31, <clears throat> where the Bible says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And forgive me for this, but you know it's necessary. How do you know if God is for you or not? It's a very important question when you consider the alternative. If you want to get married and nothing ever works out, <clears throat> does that mean God is against you? What if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? What if someone you love very dearly dies? Does that mean God is against you? What if you lose your job or can't get a job? Does that mean God is against you? <clears throat> What if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you are always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? What if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? <clears throat> In the final analysis, none of those things are any indication one way or the other. For all the good things I've mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've mentioned have happened to those God is for. So how do we know? Well, ultimately, we know that God is for us. 
because what the Bible says God has done for us. It's not the unchanging, the changing circumstances of life, but the unchanging word of God. Now there are two sentences in my text here this morning. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the first word in that second sentence, if, well, as a seminary professor, you know, I'm duty bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? It makes a big difference in this case because in the Greek language in which this was written, <clears throat> they had several different, completely different words, all translated if in English. And the only way to convey that in English is a context. For example, a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. We understand, well, he might or he might not, depending on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. That's the if that's used here at the beginning of the second sentence. We could almost translate it as since God is for us. But what was it that convinced Paul that God was for him and for all believers in Christ? Well, it's the last two words in the previous sentence where he says, what then shall we say to these things? And you can sort of see Paul stroking his chin at this point and thinking about these things. And as he ponders them, these things convince Paul and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us. Well, what then are these things that convince Paul and ought to convince believers here this morning that God is for us? Well, in one sense, it's the whole book of Romans to this point. But in the immediate context, it's the things he's just been writing about in the previous paragraph. So if you look at verse 26, <clears throat> he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In those times, you don't know what to pray because you're not omniscient. You don't know what the future holds or you've looked at two alternatives. They look equally good. You don't know what to pray or maybe you can't pray. You ever been there? Your heart's so heavy like lead in your chest, all you can do is cast yourself across the bed and just groan godwardly, oh God. Or maybe you can't pray because you're in such great pain or you're sedated or so heavily medicated, you literally cannot put two words together in your head. God is not in heaven thinking, well, bless his heart. Well, bless her heart. If she could only utter some little prayer, I'd have something to work with. Give me something to work with, would you? No, no, our God is so great and so good in those times when you don't know what to pray or he can't pray. Our text tells us the spirit himself prays for you. Look at it there. We do not know what to pray for as well, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And in addition to that, and he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit living in the believer, the mind of the Holy Spirit within us is, because the Spirit intercedes 
for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit himself intercedes for us when we just sort of groan Godwardly. He can encode upon those Godward groans the very will of God. Paul says, if God will do that, God is for me. If he will pray for me when I can't pray, in the worst moments of my life when I'm more des- I never more desperately needed prayer, but I can't pray or I don't know what to pray, he prays for me, the Spirit himself, then God is for me. But that's not all. Because of the very famous next verse, Paul says we know that God is for us. Verse 28. And we know. Have you noticed that before in Romans 8, 28 there? And we know that not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to his purpose. When do we cling to Romans 8, 28? <clears throat> the worst moments of life, right? When things don't seem to make sense. And that's why the first three words are so important here when he says, and we know that in the worst circumstances of life that this is true. How do we know that? Well, because of what we just saw in the two previous verses. When do we cling to Romans 8, 28, the worst moments of our lives? And that's exactly when the two previous verses say the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit himself is praying for us. In those moments, you don't know what to pray. You can't pray. The worst moments of your life, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? And that's why in those worst moments of life, the Spirit of God is praying for us. His prayers are always answered. That's why he, Paul begins the famous Romans 8, 28, within we know that in those moments, God is causing all things to work together in his almighty hands for our ultimate good and for his glory. All things, it says. Have you ever seen the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91, which says, for all things are your servants, all things, even the devil. Martin Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. And he is on God's chain. And as the book of Job tells us, Satan cannot do anything against the children of God unless God permits it. But God is able to take everything, even those things which are evil. And this is not a verse telling us to put on rose-colored glasses and see something that's not there. This isn't telling us to look on the bright side. Some things don't have a bright side. This isn't telling us to look for the silver lining in the cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. Some things are pure evil and you call them that and God says, amen. That's pure evil. But our God is so good and so great that he can take things that are pure evil and work together in his almighty hands to perform a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold, our ultimate good, and for his glory. He is able to take things which in and of themselves are pure evil and nothing but harmful. But see, nothing in the life of a Christian stands alone. Nothing in the life of a Christian can be evaluated by itself, even though that may be all we're able to do. But we know that God works all things together 
in hidden ways. And the final outcome is, is, is gold. You take too much sodium, it will kill you. You take chloride, it will kill you. But you work them together and in proper proportions, salt can be beneficial. God can take things that are pure evil and work them together in such a way that believe it or not, we will praise God forever for the worst things that have ever happened to us. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Like those of you who have approximately the same amount or color of hair as I do, you've lived through a lot of things. Horrible things, deaths, cancer, injustice. And if we had the time and the transparency to go around and tell what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, I'm sure with a group this size, we'd hear of things that someone probably should be put in prison for or worse. But this verse promises us that God is not able to take just some things, but even the very worst things and work them together. So then eternity, we will praise God for the worst things that have ever happened to us. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that through tears sometimes. Only a Christian can say that through tears and gritted teeth sometimes. But the Christian can say that because it is true. And I want to remind you who wrote this verse. The man who wrote this had suffered far more than any of us. The man who wrote this, the Apostle Paul tells us autobiographically in 2 Corinthians. He says, I have been beaten so many times. I can't remember how many times I've been beaten. How many times you've been beaten for the sake of the gospel? 195 times he said, I've felt the whip of the Jews across my back. How many times you had lashes across your back for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've been beaten with rods. I've been shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the deep. I've been in danger in the cities, danger in the country, danger from my own countrymen, danger from the Gentiles. He goes on and on. He has suffered far more than any of us. But he was also privileged to have the greatest human experience. He also tells us about in 2 Corinthians, he got to go to heaven and see it and come back. Unfortunately, he would tell us, I didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in your day do. But the ultimate human experience he was able to go to heaven, see how it all turns out, see things that he was not even permitted to tell us about. And after coming back, he wrote this chapter. And in addition to what we've already looked at, he wrote in this chapter, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. I've seen it, he says. I've suffered way more than you, but I've seen what you have not seen. And I'm telling you, and you have to take it by faith, he says, but I've seen it. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. Now, until eight years ago, I would have said the worst thing that ever happened to my wife and I was consequences from my first pastorate when I was right out of seminary. 
was pastor of a little country church where I was the 17th pastor in 21 years. A statistic that tells me a million times more today than when I was 25. And as a result of 15 months there, my wife and I had five hospitalizations and three surgeries from the stress. Both of us were told, you'll never be able to be parents. And for 16 years, we weren't. And God gave us a baby in bifocals the same year. But after I'd pastored this wonderful church in the suburbs of Chicago, where it was ultimately for 15 years, I said, I think I know why God allowed me to go through that horrible situation for 15 months. I wasn't ready to pastor this wonderful church, but God used that pressure cooker to get me ready. And now he's blessed me with a year for every month I had in that situation. And that's what I thought the reason was until I went to teach in one of our seminaries. And now, every single day, I stand before young men who are pastoring that same church, if you know what I mean. And it makes a world of difference to say, brother, I have been there. So sometimes, God allows us to live long enough to see why horrible things happen. And it's fairly easy to look into the future and say, yes, I'm sure, whatever happens in the future will be for God's glory, my ultimate good. And I can say that rather blithely because I haven't experienced the pain of the future yet. You know, it's really hard for me. It's believing that the things happening today are for my ultimate good and for his glory. But the Bible says that is true. And we believe by faith it is true because of the unchanging word of God. And you know, it's been my observation that Christians seem to be backing away a little bit from Romans 8, 28. Don't do that. I think I know why. I think many of us have seen people just sort of blithely throw Romans 8, 28 out to broken hearts and hurting people. Callously giving them Romans 8, 28 and going on. And we don't want to do that. And indeed, when people are on the raw edge of pain, that's not the time for Romans 8, 28. It's after things have settled down a little bit. They're really struggling, not just angry at God, but, but struggling with why God would allow something like this. That's when Romans 8, 28 is a precious oasis. I remember back when I was in Chicago listening to a call-in program one night, <clears throat> Christian radio station. Former missionary was taking the questions, as he usually did. And a young woman in her mid-20s, in tears, was sobbing and saying, a drunk driver killed my husband, left me with three young children at 25 years old. Why would God let that happen? He said, young lady, I want to assure you God had nothing to do with that. Where's the comfort in that? Where's the comfort in the fact that God was asleep? God wasn't watching over him at the time. God didn't care about you and your future. God didn't know. Where's the comfort in that? No, the only possible comfort is that though it is beyond our comprehension, God is in control and God does know and there is a purpose and one day we will understand though we may never see it in this life, but we have the hope of an eternity where God does just neutralize the pain and the memory won't hurt us anymore 
from this, we have the promise that we will bless God forever for the worst things that have ever happened to us because we have a God that great and that good that is unimaginable apart from the word of God and unimaginable apart from this side of our experience. But that is the great hope of a God that great and that good who can take everything, even the worst things that have ever happened and not just neutralize them not just cause the memory to be gone in eternity and it doesn't hurt anymore, but infinitely better than that. And that's not all. That's not the only, these aren't the only things that says that convince Paul should convince us that God is for us. But as the passage goes on, something that's called Paul's golden chain in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 29 says, if you are in Christ, God foreknew you. And it means much more than he just knew about you in advance. He knew about choices you would make in advance. It's a much more intimate word than that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you knowing everything about you, knowing every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway. And he goes on, and he predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, if it said we were predestined to become conformed to the image of angels, we would have rejoiced for eternity that God would make such as us creatures that glorious. And it, it seems to me that that's exactly what most Americans think, that somehow when you die, humans morph into angels, right? I mean, even Jimmy Stewart, Clarence is trying to get his angel's wings, right? He used to be a human, he came back to earth, now he's angel second class, he's trying to get his angel's wings. And you notice political cartoons and so forth, if it shows people in heaven, they're angels, right? And if we were made like that, we would rejoice forever. Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John falls on his face and worships angels. Now he knew better than that. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? Especially by the end of his life. He knew theologically, you don't worship angels. But when they appeared to him, even in just a 15-watt bulb version of glory, he fell on his face. In both occasions, they had to say, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure as the old man got up, he said something like, I, I know, I know, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't help myself. You're too glorious. If we knew we'd be made like that, we'd praise God forever. But folks, it's better than that. We are predestined, it says, to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like him, not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as our Mormon neighbors believe. Rather, we will be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every pore and cell of our bodies. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's not all. For those whom he predestined, it says these he also called. 
through the gospel with a call that awakens the spiritually dead. And he had no obligation to do so. And he did not need us on his team. But many of us can remember, like when I was a little boy that Thursday night at nine years old, that series of meetings, though I'd grown up in the church and been taken to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, nine months before I was born. That Thursday night, I heard God calling me in a way unlike he was calling the boys to my right and my left that night. And I heard him calling me, though I was dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 1, 2 says, even though that I was his enemy, he had no obligation. He did not need me, but he called me in the same kind of way when he walked into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And that's the way he came into my heart that night when I was nine years old and told me to come forth. He called me. But not only that, for those whom he called, it says the Israel also justified. What a great word. A word that means far more than the, the mere forgiveness of all our sins as if we can even speak of the mere forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed. Because there's much more than that. For do you realize if you'd never sinned in your life, you still couldn't go to heaven? It takes more to go to heaven than no sin. And we have infinite sin. Jonathan Edwards, I did my PhD on Jonathan Edwards. One edition in Encyclopedia Britannica calls him the greatest mind America has ever produced. Fascinating when you think, who said that? These aren't Christians, these aren't Americans. These are modern, secular, European academics looking over our entire intellectual landscape. And they don't choose one of our scientists, they don't choose one of our engineers, they don't choose one of our statesmen. They choose a rural preacher of the 1700s as the greatest mind America's ever produced. Must be pretty sharp, right? Jonathan Edwards famously said that my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How could that be? Well, in one sense, our sins are infinite because we never do anything without it being to some degree affected by sin because we never do anything perfectly. Every word, every deed, every thought, every motive is to some degree affected by sin, even when we're not aware of it. Because after the fall, sin affected every part of us. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, every word, every deed, every thought, every motive would be some shade of blue. Something's a light blue, something's a dark blue, but everything would be some shade of blue. So that even our best deeds and our most self-sacrificial moments are infected to some degree with sin. You stop and help a stranger on the side of the road. You get up to help a sick child in the middle of the night. It's to some degree affected with sin. Now it may be as nothing more than, well, I hope someone sees me do this. I hope my spouse appreciates this. But there's some sense of selfishness there, even if we're not aware of it. Maybe just for a moment, but it is there. What does the Bible say? Prophets tell us that even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We know our sins are filthy rags, but compared to the holiness of God, <clears throat> even those things which appear righteous to others are filthy rags in the sight of a perfect, holy God. 
Even our righteousness says, it says, in those moments when you, you choose sin or righteousness, say, I choose, I choose righteousness. Good. That's what we ought to do. God is pleased with that in some sense, but even our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. Therefore, every word, every deed, every thought, every motive is affected by some degree of sin. At this point, the microphone with the center point of a line extending infinitely in this direction, minus one, minus two, minus three, and plus one, plus two, plus three in this direction. Our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But if you had never sinned in your life, that just brings you back to zero. And the Bible says we must not only, not only have no sin and we have infinite sin, we must have perfect righteousness and we have none. But there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. 33 years, day and night, without ceasing, he loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, and his neighbors himself. And not once, even under the constant false accusations and the onslaught of his enemies, did he ever once just kind of lose it for a second but get it under control again? Never once for 33 years did he break the law of God. Never once, 33 years, did he fail to keep the law of God. And by his life, Jesus earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And he willingly offered himself on the cross for that purpose. And God accepted that on our behalf. We know because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven to sit at the right hand of God from which he will come someday. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5, 21 talks about that great exchange, which says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero, neutral, Know that we might be the righteousness of God in him. When we believe into Christ, we are united with Christ. You've heard of union with Christ. And, 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 and so we, we faith into Christ. We believe into Christ. And we are united with Christ by faith. And get this. We then get credit for his life. God looks upon you as though you healed those people. God looks upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Christ. And he looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, Jesus got credit for my life. And you know what? My life got the perfectly pure son of God. The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified. But it's even better than that. For those whom he justified, our text says, these he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever. And notice it's past tense there. Though it's still future in our experience, it's done in the mind of God. So Paul says, what shall, what shall we say to these things? What things? Well, he gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I can't pray. I don't know what to pray. He prays for me and he always prays God's will. And before, he takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, the stonings when I was left for dead. Paul said he takes everything and doesn't just neutralize them so the pain won't hurt me anymore someday. He actually turns them into gold for which I will praise God forever and ever. My ultimate good is glory. And in all eternity past, knowing every sin I would ever commit in my life, he loved me anyway. And, and predestined me, me, to be like Jesus. 
and called me when I was his enemy, when I was dead in trespasses and sins and gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and ensured that I'm gonna be like Christ forever and ever gleaming in glory. What shall we say to these things? We can say a lot, but at the very least we can say this, God is for us. God is for us. Well, there's so much more I could say to these things, but my time is gone. I was going to impress them, if that's true, why is my life so hard? <laughs> God is for me like that. Well, the world is against us, the Bible says, and Jesus said, the flesh is against us. This sin factory that beats in my chest causes me to make choices that leave scars on my body and scars on my relationship. And the devil makes life harder like he did for Job. What this is ultimately saying is, if God is for us, nothing or no one can thwart God's plan for us. Nothing or no one can thwart God's plan for us. So the ultimate question is, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who will come to Christ. But he is against those who refuse. And your life may be going very well right now. But ultimately, you stand before him until your horror realize what it's going to mean that you made God your enemy because you rejected his son. But if you will come to Christ, regardless of who you are, what you've done, or how many times you've done it, he will receive you. You may have been fearful of walking in here today that this church may collapse because of your life. He'll receive even you. Or you may have been in this church almost every Sunday of your life but if your life were exposed, it would be the biggest scandal in Nashville. He receives self-righteous people too. He'll receive even you. So in the name of Jesus, I say, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Whoever you are, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And whether you ever get the house you want or the spouse you want or the income you want or the job you want, come to Christ and you get God. And if God is for us, who is against us? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You were willing to come for such as us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the church. For all of these things, Lord, we thank you. And I pray now you would make Jesus irresistibly beautiful in the sight of everyone here. I ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitney. What a privilege it was to sit under your preaching. That was a gospel-centered message that God is for us, not so that we can neutralize the pain of this world, but so that we can turn it to praise, so that we can actually praise God, not just feel nothing, not just be zero forgiven, but to have the righteousness of God and that nothing can thwart God's plans for Woodmont's future or for your future. That's a wonderful gospel-saturated truth and message. What an honor it is to have uh, Dr. Whitney and Coy here. Thank you for making the journey and safe travels back. I encourage you again, if you have not come to Christ, if you've never received Christ, if you're, then God is not for you. Theologically, that is true, that God is for those who are found in Christ and who contain the righteousness of Christ in them through his sacrifice. 
If you've never responded to that call of the free gift of salvation that, that God offers us through Jesus, I encourage you right now to come and to talk to me about what that looks like. We're going to stand and sing, take my life as we surrender our lives. If you are a Christian, have you surrendered your life afresh to him today? Take my life and lead me, Lord, in the way that you will go and nothing will thwart it because God is for us. Who can possibly be against us? Amen. Let's stand and sing. Take my life, lead me, Lord.